Uh, today's uh, scripture reading is from Genesis 45, verses 1 through 9. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. This is the word of God. Good afternoon again, everyone. It is, uh, it's great to see you all. And uh, it's great to worship with you. I always say that um, every time I stand up here, I think. But it really is true. It really is. It brings me joy to look out and see all your faces, and it brings me joy to remember that we get the chance every Sunday to gather and worship God together in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. It really is awesome. Um, we've been trekking through the story of Joseph and his family, and uh, as that story is told to us in the book of Genesis, and today we're coming to the emotional climax of this entire narrative. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we jump into God's word and into this climax in the story. Before we do that, though, I do want to welcome back all of you um, women who were present at the women's retreat over this past weekend. Um, it's great to see you all. You guys are operating on probably much less sleep than the rest of us are. Thank you for, the, for, for your willing sacrifice to do that. Um, what with a weekend retreat and daylight savings, it's kind of a lot, isn't it? Um, but I've heard really wonderful things from Delimar about the women's retreat and from Wendy, our speaker, as well. I know that she was really blessed to be with you guys, and I look forward to hearing more from all of you about what God did and is doing through this gathering. Um, I'm really excited for the fact that you guys got to, got to be together um, for that time. Also, I'm told that the um, sessions were all successfully recorded which is always a great accomplishment. And we go to retreat and we're able to actually get everything on, on some kind of recording device. It's done and God willing, it'll be on our website for those of you who missed this retreat and would like to listen to it. Um, men and women and children alike, all of you. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to gather, welcomed by you, Jesus Christ, into the presence of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit to worship you. What an awesome, awesome privilege you've given us. What joy we find in your presence, Lord. And to the degree, Father, that gathering to worship you has become rote in our own minds, we want to confess that to you. We want to ask you to change that. Father, would you give us a, a renewed sense of the, the, the intimacy that we experience with you in our private times of worship and in our public times of gathered worship. Spirit, we pray that you would fill us as we study your word this afternoon, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us Jesus Christ throughout the pages of this account. Reveal to us Jesus in all of his compassion, all of his love. Reveal to us the power of his sacrifice on our behalf. And we ask that we would be transformed by what we see. Transformed into people who are forgiving, who are loving, who are sacrificing, who are simply committed disciples of the one who died for us. 
We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we've been tracking through the story of Joseph. And what we saw last week is that this man, this guy who was attacked and abandoned by his brothers, is now patiently working towards reconciliation with those same brothers, which is pretty incredible. Joseph wants to restore the family relationships that were broken because of jealousy, because of deceit, and so many other family sins. This man, Joseph, has been at this point separated from his family for more than 20 years. He first arrived in Egypt as a slave sold by his brothers. Now, 20 plus years later, through a series of crazy experiences, he finds himself to be the ruler, a ruler, over the Egyptian empire. And, and while he's serving as ruler over the Egyptian empire, this famine strikes the land. It's widespread famine. And this famine brings, it drives his brothers, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt looking for food. And that search for food leads these brothers right to Joseph himself. Only they don't know it's Joseph. They have no idea who it is. After all, this man before them is powerful. He's wealthy. He looks and sounds Egyptian. He's even got his Egyptian name, Zaphanath Panea. They have no inkling of the fact that this might even be a Hebrew, let alone their own brother. In chapter 44 of Genesis, they refer to him repeatedly as the man. All they know is that he's the man. He's powerful. He holds their future in the palm of his, of his hand. And they're scared of him. And they need him to show mercy to them. We're not going to rehash all the details, but what we also saw last week is that God has brought Joseph's brothers to a place of repentance. That is, that is these brothers have experienced a change of heart that's led to a change in their actions, a change in the way that they speak, a change in the kinds of decisions that they make. They are not the same men they once were. God has used a series of deeply difficult experiences in their lives to bring them to this place of repentance. And that all becomes really clear at the end of Genesis 44, when Judah, who's one of Joseph's brothers, and he might be the, the baddest of the bunch, he gives this impassioned speech at the end of Genesis 44. And, and if you read and you listen to Judah's words carefully, you'll see that they reveal a heart that's filled with remorse. A heart that's filled with loving concern for his family and concern for his own father. This is a transformed man. This is a repentant person. And all that brings us here to episode 8 in the story of Joseph and his family. And we're calling it Forgiveness and Welcome. Episode 8, Forgiveness and Welcome. And, and here's a big idea that I'm hoping we will walk away with from this passage. I hope we'll see this, that Joseph's deep awareness of God's sovereign goodness frees him to forgive the deepest hurts and even welcome those who hurt him. I'm going to repeat that. We want to see that Joseph's deep awareness of God's sovereign goodness, it frees him to forgive the deepest hurts and even welcome those who hurt him. There are three points that are going to guide us through this. We want to see these three characteristics in Joseph as we go through this chapter. The first one is we want to see a heart of forgiveness. Secondly, we want to see an experience of God's sovereign goodness. And thirdly, we want to see a wholehearted welcome. A wholehearted welcome. So let's start here. A heart of forgiveness. A heart of forgiveness. I'm going to invite you to open up to Genesis 45. If you have a Bible, if you don't, there should be one right in front of you. And if you grab that Bible and open up to page 45, you will find Genesis 45. Very convenient, right? Grab that Bible and open up to page 45. I'm going to read just the first two verses here. And remember, Judah has just delivered his desperate speech to Joseph. And Joseph responds this way. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. 
so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph has cried twice before in this story that we know of anyway. In Genesis 42, 24, and 43, 40. But here it's, it's different because here when he cries, he's not able to hide it. In those other instances, he's able to get away, wash his face, and pretend like everything is okay. Here he just loses it completely. He's overwhelmed and he loses control of himself. Even the Egyptians that he kicks out of the room, they're not even there. And from the other room, they can hear him crying. Imagine everyone's confusion here. This is, if not the most powerful man in Egypt, the second most. And the reason I say maybe he's the most powerful, because he says later on in this chapter, God has made me a lord over Egypt. He even says that to Pharaoh, he was kind of like a father, which is very interesting, because I think the way that many of us might think about this is that you've got Pharaoh. Pharaoh lifts Joseph up to this place of prominence, but he's still second in command. He's kind of like Pharaoh's sidekick. Pharaoh looks down on him, gives him tasks to do, trusts him, but he's beneath Pharaoh. The way he describes it, he says, I've become like a father to Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? He's become a kind of mentor to the ruler of the biggest empire in the world. And that guy is breaking down in uncontrollable sobbing. Imagine the confusion in that room. Why is he crying? They're probably asking themselves. And then Joseph does this, verse 3. He says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? To this point, when he's asked about his father, he doesn't call him my father. He says, your father, right? Is your father alive? Tell me about your father. Here he's saying, listen, your father is my father. I'm your brother. Is our dad okay? Can you reassure me? Can, can, you, can, you, can you let me know, is he really Alive, and, and, and at this point, Joseph is speaking the language of his brothers. Up until this point, he had been speaking through a translator. He was hiding the fact that he was a Hebrew. But here he breaks out of all of that. He addresses his brothers in their language, in their particular regional dialect. Their heart language. He says, I'm your brother. Imagine how confused they must have been. It says at the end of verse 3, his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That, that word for dismayed, another, another way to put it would be horrified. That word often in the Bible is translated as filled with terror, shattered. It's, it's paralyzing fear. And often in the Bible, at least four times in the Old Testament, it's used to describe soldiers who are facing death in battle. They are about to die, and that's what they feel. His brothers are thinking, this is the end of the road for us. They don't know how to respond. They can't even get a word out. But soon they're going to see that they're safe. That, that Joseph is revealing himself to them in love, not to condemn them, not to shame them, not because he's about to avenge himself on them. Instead, he's revealing himself to them so that he can embrace them, so that he can welcome them into a restored relationship, so that he can give them all that he has. There's no way they expected any of this. It says in verse 4, verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. It almost doesn't make sense. He's saying, you sold me into Egypt, but come near. Come near to me. I'm still your brother. You sold me. You tried to get rid of me. You left me for dead. But I'm still your brother. He doesn't send them to prison to do their time and then say, after you've paid the price for the crimes you've committed, then you can come back and we'll see about reestablishing this relationship. No, he says, before any price has been paid, come near to me now. You see, Joseph is willing to absorb all the debt all the pain, all the offense. He's going to absorb it all. 
And we, and we can't get past this without realizing that this may be the most beautiful picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus does for us as people. The most graphic and beautiful picture of, of how Jesus stands before people who have betrayed, attacked, abandoned him. He stands before us in power. He reveals who he is to us, the Son of God, King, Judge of the universe. And yet at the same time that he uncovers all of our sin and he shows us just how powerful he is, at the same time he says, come to me. Come near. I'm your brother. He reveals himself to be judge and king and at the same time, savior and brother. You see, when Jesus reveals our sin to us, when he reveals to us our deep, deep guilt, have you ever been there? Where you're confronted with the horror of what you've done or what you haven't done that you should have? You're, you're faced with the horror of the guilt that you're carrying through life because of your transgressions, your evil words and deeds and good deeds left undone. It's all opened up before you. When Jesus reveals our sin to us, when he shows us our deep guilt, it's an act of mercy. Just like what the Joseph is doing here is an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. Because at the same time that Jesus reveals to us the horror of what's inside of us, he says, come near. Please come near to me. I'm your brother. Jesus says to us, just as Joseph says to them, you sold me out, but I will purchase you back. You hated me, but I will love you. Matthew 28.10, there's this, this scene where Jesus Christ, he has just risen from the dead, and he's speaking to these women who he encounters um, just, just outside of his tomb. And he wants them to go to his disciples, to all the other disciples, and tell them about what they've seen. But the way he speaks to these women is amazing, because he doesn't say, go grab those guys who deserted me and tell them that I've risen from the dead. He doesn't say, go grab those guys, find those guys who betrayed me, who doubted me, and tell them I'm back. No, he says these words. He says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers that I'm alive. I'm still their brother. I still love them, and I want to be with them. In Hebrews 11, it says that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brother. You don't have to raise your hand. In fact, don't. But have you ever been embarrassed by a family member? Maybe a younger sibling or an older sibling or someone else in your family? I can remember going through seasons in my life when I was a kid, when I was in, in school, and I didn't want my parents to walk all the way up to the door with me because I was embarrassed to be with them. I wanted to walk on my own. I didn't even want my brothers to walk with me. I wanted to be on my own. My brothers would let me have it. They knew I was, I was embarrassed to be walked to school by them. My brothers were much older than me. And they knew that I was embarrassed when they dropped me off and when they'd walk me up to the door. They could sense it, and so they'd really, like, they'd, they'd make me feel it even worse. They'd say terrible things to me as I was walking into school, in elementary school. They'd say, Bobby, come back. You didn't give me a kiss. Give me a hug. Come on. And, and they'd say things like, don't worry. if you. It's okay that you wet the bed last night. Don't worry. And I'd be like, oh, man, leave me alone. I'd be embarrassed. And now I know what it's like. I've got kids, and I know that in some situations, they might be embarrassed to be around me. I would be, too. Jesus Christ, our older brother, 
says, I'm not ashamed to be around you. In fact, I long to be near you. I want you to be with me. Even though, even though we have a record with him of betrayal and abandonment, lack of trust, he says, come near to me. Come near to me. I want to ask you, have you ever seen Jesus in that way? As your older brother who longs to be with you? Because he's both. He is, he is the ruler that you've offended. There's no doubt. But if you've put your faith in him, then he's also the brother who welcomes you nevertheless. And both of those matter. Both of those matter. We need to see him as the ruler that we've offended and hurt. There's no doubt. But some of us, I think we get stuck there. We lose sight of the fact that he's our brother who welcomes us. John Stott, 20th century British uh, Christian leader, said, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Here's what he meant. He meant, we need to look at the cross of Christ and see that that's our fault. That his death is on us. That our sins led him to that point. It's only after we see that that we can then take the next step of seeing, not only was it by me, not only is it my fault that he died, it's for me. My sin sent him there. He took my sins and he obliterated them there. Paid for them completely. There's this hymn that we, um, we sing sometimes, it's one of my favorites, called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's, there's a, a, a stanza in there that reads this way. It says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. My sin! My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice crying out among the scoffers. I mocked him. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But it ends this way. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. What is finished? What is finished? Your sin is finished. The payment for your sin has completely been taken care of. You sent him there. You mocked him. But what he accomplished there is for you. And so now, as a resurrected Christ, he can welcome you completely into his presence. So again, have you seen God this way? Many of us, I think we have a warped view of God. I don't know where it comes from necessarily. We have a, it may come from different places for different ones of us. But we have a warped view of God. We see him just as judge or simply as ruler. And because he's a judge and because he's a ruler, he, he may ignore me at best or at worst. He just wants to crush me. But if that's where you are, then I think you need to look at Jesus Look at Jesus as he's presented to us right here in this story about Joseph. He says, come near to me. That's what the gospel says to us. In the gospel, we hear Christ himself saying, you crucified me. I forgive and welcome you. I'm your brother. Now, we might doubt him when we hear that. And Jesus knows that we doubt <laughs> Sometimes we're afraid to come near to him because we see him only as judge. And so, for instance, let's say we fall into some sin. We're afraid to go back and pray to Jesus. We're afraid to go back and commune with him because we're thinking, he was my brother, but after what I've done, he's just a judge now. He's just an angry guy now. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus looks out upon a whole city. And he says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. He is willing. He is willing to have us come near. He's willing to gather us, no matter what we've done, gather us like a, a hen 
gathers her chicks under her wings. He's always willing. We are the ones who often will stay away for one reason or another. Satan, the enemy, he he lies to us. He he tells us, don't go. Don't go to Jesus. He's going to judge you. He's going to reject you. You're going to go back to him again? You really think he's going to receive you back? You're not good enough. Or maybe it's not that you're not good enough. It's he's not good enough. He's not that good. He's not that kind. He's not that merciful. He's not going to take you back again. Jesus says in John 6, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. You and I need to hear this daily. We need to hear Jesus saying to us daily, come near to me. When you fall into sin, when you disappoint others, when you disappoint yourself, like when you do stuff that you really didn't even expect to ever do, Or you sin in the same way that you used to sin, but you never thought you'd do that again. You thought you were past that. You thought you had gotten sanctified past the place of committing that sin again. More than ever before, that's when you need to hear Jesus saying, come near to me. When your sins are uncovered and you're ashamed, just like Joseph's brothers were naked and ashamed. If you are a sinner... You are welcomed by Jesus. One question I think we have to ask ourselves as we look at Joseph in the story is, how can Joseph have this heart of forgiveness towards his brothers? It's an amazing heart of forgiveness, isn't it? How does he get to that place? That brings us to our second point. An experience of God's sovereign goodness. Experience of God's sovereign goodness. Look at verse uh, 5 of Genesis 45. I'm going to read from verse 5 down to verse 8. Joseph speaking. He says, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. You hear that? Don't be distressed. You look kind of shattered. You look like you're beside yourselves. You, you, you look so nervous. Don't be distressed. And don't be angry. You know, all the stuff you did, the lies, human trafficking, Betrayal. Don't be angry with yourselves about that. He says, because, because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God, listen, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see why Joseph is able to have this heart of forgiveness towards his brothers? Because he has had a deep experience of God's sovereign goodness. He has become aware of the fact that God is in control and God is good. How many times? Three times in this this paragraph he says, God sent me. You sold me into slavery, but God really sent me here. You pretended I was dead and lied to our father, but God's the one who actually sent me here. You see, he sees the hand of God behind all of it. He doesn't clear them of guilt. He says, you did sin against me. There's no doubt. But he says, at the same time, you can be free of all this suppressed guilt. And in a sense, what what Joseph is doing is he's turning his brother's attention away from themselves so that they will look at God instead. He's not minimizing their human responsibility. But he's come to this place after 20 years. He's had 20 years to process this, right? Over 20 years, he's realized something. 20 years of experiencing God's presence, 20 years of experiencing God's steadfast love has brought him to realize something vital. As he looks at his life, as Joseph looks at his own circumstances, his focus isn't on his brothers who got him there. His focus isn't even on Pharaoh or the others that he's encountered along the way. Joseph's focus is squarely on God, the God who overrules all of it, 
the God who uses all of it, the God who ordained all of it, in fact, to accomplish his purposes. And what were God's purposes? God's purposes were to rescue, to redeem, to preserve this family, Joseph's family, so that centuries down the line, Judah's descendant, Jesus Christ, could be born to redeem, to rescue. Because Joseph has a clear sense of God's powerful presence and sovereign goodness behind everything that's happening to him, he's able to forgive. We've seen before that God permits, I've said this in previous weeks, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And it's not just a cliche. It's not just something that you embroider and and put on a wall or something like that, although you, you, you may want to do that. It's a truth that shapes the way that Joseph responds, even to the hardest situations in his life, even to the deepest hurts that he experiences. In fact, Joseph goes a step further. He doesn't just say God allowed these things to happen. He says, God sent me. He knows that if he hadn't gone to Egypt, the famine would have scattered his family. It maybe would have even killed his family. The famine would have killed millions of other people too. And if the famine had destroyed his family in particular, then that would have eradicated the the, the family line. There would be no Messiah. There would be no Jesus. There would be no salvation. Look at what he says in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It's an understatement. This is a central theme of the Bible. It's a theme that shows up throughout the entire Bible. People do things, in some cases horrible things, and yet in hindsight we see that it all works into God's perfect plan to accomplish the greatest things. Salvation. Redemption. In the book of Acts, Peter, the apostle, is preaching. This is right after Jesus has died and is risen again. He sent his disciples into the world to make disciples. Peter's preaching to a bunch of people, and he says this in Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's saying, look, there was this man, Jesus. He did marvelous signs, wonderful signs that proved to you that he was the Son of God. And then he says, but this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up. In other words, you took him by lawless hands, unjustifiably, through your wickedness and your evil actions, you took him and you killed him. You crucified him. And yet in all of that, God says, it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then God rose him up from the dead. Human evil God's perfect plan, somehow, somehow, God uses the former to accomplish the latter. He doesn't force anyone to sin. The Bible tells us that God does not tempt people to sin. If we can't make sense of this in our minds, then it's be, it, there's a reason for that. Because we're not God. This is beyond us. This is beyond our ability to make sense of. All we can do is hold on to it as truth. Hold on to the tension between the fact that, on the one hand, I am fully responsible for the bad decisions that I've made in my life. And at the same time, I can look back and see how God, in his perfect, sovereign power, used even those awful decisions to bring blessedness into my life and to lives of others. It's what he does in the cross of Jesus Christ. The worst crime ever committed leads to redemption. 
No wonder Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, Joseph is not minimizing sin here, but he's accenting, he's putting the spotlight on God's sovereignty. Now, now here's what I think we should do with this truth. It's by way of a kind of an application. For one thing, if you're a Christian, maybe you can look back and see how your sin played into God's plan. There's regret over those sins, and yet you can see how the Lord redeemed those things and used them to accomplish things that you never even had in mind. But I think another application from this is that if you have a deep awareness of God's sovereign goodness, then you too can be freed to forgive, to cancel debts, to absorb the debts that others have incurred towards you. You see, the truth that Joseph came to realize very clearly over those 20 years that he was in Egypt is that God was in control of his circumstances. That means that if someone hurts me, as deep, as, as awful as the pain may be, I can still step back and, and, and see, you have hurt me, you have harmed me, you have taken something from me, and yet, and yet, you're not in control of the situation. God is. God is in control of my circumstances, not you. I don't need to get revenge against you. I don't need to make you pay. No, God's in control of all that. He will do justice. He will do what's right. I can entrust myself to him. That brings us peace. That brings us comfort. It brings us rest when we're offended, when we're hurt and we're finding it hard to forgive. See the sovereign hand of God behind even the worst circumstances that we encounter. And and the fact is, I think that this applies to the little hurts that we experience, not just the big ones. In fact, I think that sometimes we are unable to forgive the big offenses that people have committed against us. The reason we find it so hard to forgive those, some cases, in some cases, is because we've not cultivated the habit of forgiving the little offenses, smaller hurts. I said last week, I think something like, we we all know what it's like to want to get payback. Whether it's for those deep wounds that you've experienced in your life and you've always wanted to get revenge, or those smaller wounds like the guy who cuts you off on the Sprain Parkway. You want payback. I really believe that this is true, that as Christians, if we are not cultivating the habit, the discipline, so to speak, of forgiving those little offenses like the guy who cut you off or the person who took credit for your work or the person who looked at you funny or said a mean word to you or the person who lied to you. If you're not willing to, 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 to forgive those smaller offenses that we encounter day to day to day, those little examples of disrespect those little, those little undermining experiences that we have every day, if we're not cultivating the habit of forgiving those, then when we're faced with these huge offenses, there's no way we're going to forgive. We're going to hold on to a grudge. We're going to want to pay back. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 5, one of those, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's, and he's, he's confronting them because they're in the, they're in, they've got fallen into this habit of taking one another to court. You know, they're, they're, you owe me money, I'm going to sue you. I did some work for you, you didn't pay me, I'm going to sue you. They're taking each other to court for these like, small claim stuff. And Paul comes to them and says, why can't you just be wronged? You are co-heirs with Christ. You have the future expectation that you will receive everything, everything that God has promised you. All that is his is yours. You have eternal life, eternal blessed joy in the presence of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Eternally speaking, things can't get better for you. Why can't you just take a loss in this argument? In this conflict? Why, why can't you just take an L, take a loss and say, I'm just going to be wronged here. I'm willing to be cheated here. Why is it so hard? Again, I believe that if we cultivate the discipline of seeking to forgive even those small offenses, it's going to put us in a much better place when we face those big offenses and we're called upon to forgive. So I've, I've tried to, I'm, I'm not very good at this, I'll, I'll confess, but I've tried to um, practice a discipline of when someone does something for, um, to me, like, I keep mentioning getting cut off because that's, that's something that really just gets me. I hate it when people drive aggressively and, and cut me off, especially when I have kids in the car. I get very self-righteous about it. I start to act as if I've never done that to anyone. I get very angry. I want payback. I want to drive. I, I, terrible thoughts go through my mind. And that person who just did that to me becomes like the, the, the most evil person in the world, in my mind, in that moment. So I'm trying to cultivate this discipline of, of thinking different thoughts. I'm trying to think, instead of just getting really angry, bitter, fantasizing about what it would look like to tell that person off or maybe get out of my car and punch them in the face, instead of like fantasizing about that and then forgetting about it, which is what I am prone to do, maybe you can relate to that, get really angry, I want payback, then you forget about it, right? Instead of doing that, what I'm seeking to do is to offer forgiveness, unrequested, unsolicited. And I'm starting to try to think, well, I don't know what's going on in that guy's life today. I don't know what terrible experience he's had. I don't know why he decided to cut me off. But perhaps I can find it in my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to not get angry, to actually offer forgiveness, to even say it like under my breath, I forgive you for what you just did. He'll never hear it. God hears it. And, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that the long-term effect of forgiving these small infractions where no one even knows that I'm angry in the first place will put me in a better place to forgive those bigger offenses when they come and they will come. None of us may ever face the kind of betrayal that Joseph faced, but we have all and we will face betrayal. Maybe we've never experienced the kind of abuse and rejection that he experienced, but we will experience abuse and rejection if we haven't already. A deep awareness of God's sovereign goodness will free us to offer forgiveness, even when it's unsolicited. Lastly, lastly, we see in this story a wholehearted welcome. A wholehearted welcome. Here's what I want us to see here. I want us to see that Joseph doesn't just forgive and say, We're gonna I'm gonna cancel the debts, go back home, you live your life, I'll live mine. You don't owe me anything. I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes way beyond that. Look at verse 9. He says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Land of Goshen was um, perhaps some of the most fertile, beautiful land on the, the coast of the Nile. He's basically giving them prime real estate. He's giving them, his family, the best part of Egypt to live in. And you shall be near me, and your, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have will be near me. Verse 11, he says, there I will provide for you. You don't have to worry anymore. You're going to be taken care of. I've got you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. This isn't just cold, kind of contractual, business-like forgiveness. This is emotional. This is hearts being poured out. He's still weeping. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. They sat and they talked. They had like normal fellowship. 
That's crazy considering what they did to this man. Now they can sit and talk. At the beginning of Genesis, the, the narrator tells us that these brothers couldn't say one kind word to Joseph. They hated him that much. Now he has all the more reason to hate them back. But instead, what's happened here? Again, it's not just a contractual, yeah, I'm going to cancel the debt. You do you, I'll do me, let's live our separate lives. No, there's emotional catharsis, embracing. This is true reconciliation. At the heart level, some of us have broken families, broken friendships, and we need to look at this picture. Because as we said last week, reconciliation is never guaranteed for us, right? We don't have the promise that our families are always going to be reconciled. We don't know or that our friendships, our old friendships that are broken are always going to be reconciled. We don't have a guarantee that that will happen. What we have is a call upon us to do whatever we can to work towards reconciliation, right? As Christians, we're called to forgive. We're called to confess where we have sinned, work towards reconciliation, even though we don't have the guarantee that it's really going to work out. But still, this is an encouraging scene for us because it reminds us that reconciliation is a constant possibility. There is no family that is too far gone. If that were true, then this would be the family, I think. And sometimes, what it takes for healing to start to happen in a broken family or in a broken friendship is for one person to start to practice this kind of radical forgiveness. I call it radical because it's, it's crazy forgiveness. It's over and beyond. It's not just I forgive you, but it's I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. I want you to live here with me, near me, and I'll provide for you. I'm going to offer you all that, my, that I have. I'm going to give you the best of what I have. That kind of radical forgiveness. Pharaoh gets caught up in the beauty of all of this, too. I think Pharaoh is so amazed that all this is happening. He's like, you know what? I'm in. I'll give you some stuff, too. He says, give them this land. I'm going to give them food. I'm going to give them everything they need. These brothers gave Joseph the worst. He gives them the best. And again, this is a beautiful picture of the abundant welcome that we receive from God when we finally submit to Jesus' call, come near to me. When we hear Jesus say, come near to me, and we answer and we go, this is what we receive. It's not just a cold handshake from Jesus says, try harder next time, hope you do better. Two strikes, you know, I'm taking you back this time. But you better shape up. No, it's this abundant welcome. Everything I have is yours. Everything. Full inheritance. Full standing within the family. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father was willing to give his son to make you his own how is he going to hold back anything from you that you need? This is how the book of Genesis ends right here. This story. We haven't finished it completely, but you're going to see as we get to the, the, the final chapters of this book. It's an interesting ending as we, as we wrap up in the next couple of weeks. Because if you, if you read the, the beginning of Genesis, where does it start? Genesis begins in a garden, doesn't it? A beautiful garden. God makes these people and he gives them the best of what he has. He gives them the best spot on earth. And they live there. But then they sin. And they're exiled from the garden. But how does Genesis end? It's like a welcome back to the garden. It's like Jesus himself is saying, come back, I'm, I'm bringing you back. You get to live in Goshen. You get the best real estate possible. It's a return to the garden itself.
This is what is ours in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about you get forgiven when you trust in Jesus. It's much more than you get forgiven when you trust in Jesus. Along with forgiveness, there is wholehearted welcome into the family. Into the perfect fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the joy, all the understanding, all the perfect peace that existed eternally within the triune Godhead becomes yours and mine. We are brought in to enjoy all of it. This is what we have in the gospel. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that he's really good? And if you do, if you do, does that belief shape the way that you view the offenses that are committed against you? Does it shape the way that you're able to forgive others who hurt you? We live in a culture that's marked, I think, in a lot of ways by rage. It seems easier and easier to offend and to be offended. As Christians who believe in a sovereign, good God, who've been welcomed into perfect fellowship with God, I believe that we were meant to be marked by a completely different way of life. I think we should be amongst the hardest people to offend and the quickest people to forgive. Let's ask God to give us the grace to be that. Lord, we're astounded by your mercy and grace toward us. This this story, I I have to be honest, this story seems too good to be true, frankly. And yet yet this, this, this story is given to us to point to an even more unbelievable story. (laughs) What can we say but thank you, Lord? Thank you. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Deepen our awareness and our experiential uh, trust in you, our sovereign and good God. Make us a people who cancel debts, who offer forgiveness freely and liberally, and entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.